Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Alien vs. Predator Galaxy podcast. This is regular host Aaron Percival. And this is co-host Adam Zeller. And happy Alien Day 2021, everybody. As always, we, we tend to record these a little bit in advance, so we don't know whatever other special stuff's going on. We don't know if uh, Fireteam's been massively spoiled for us yet, or, or we've had a demo or anything yet. But here's our little advanced treat for you guys and girls out there. So like we like to, you know, we've been in track down some people that have a huge stamp on the on the Alien franchise, and it is none other than Studio ADI's Alec Gillis and Tom Woodruff. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Yeah, thanks for coming. Thank you. Thanks for having us here, especially today. <laughs> of all days, the, the the Alien Holy Day. Obviously, we, we had Alec on in the past, so it, it took a few years to get him to be comfortable enough to come back and, um, you know, be subjected to these nerdy-ass questions that we always have for these super incredible people that get to make these franchises that Adam and I spend time just nerding the hell out about about details. And we're going to be testing your guys' memory, so I do apologize in advance for that. I went crazy on the Alien 3-related stuff as to, do you remember this? What about this kind of things? No. But uh, we'll... We'll see how we get on with that one. Well, that's scary. You could you could have asked us some of those questions like three months after we finished Alien Three, and still would not be able to recall. <laughs> we probably have like better memories now than we did right after that experience. I want to take a moment to thank Adam for that fantastic. Oh yeah, and thank you again for gifting it to me when I visited the the first time a few years yeah. ago. Aaron, you don't have one, I guess, huh? <laughs> no, no, I I'm stuck on this crappy little island called England, Tom, Great Britain, whatever. Tom, listen, Tom and I have we are Anglophiles. We have had such phenomenal experiences working our craft in England, and the crews there and the talent that's there is unbelievable. So this one, we're, we're going to start off, and this one's addressed to Tom, because Alex's already been subjected to these on his <laughs> his last appearance. So uh, one of the tri- uh, traditions that we have on the show when we have new guests on is to ask them about the first time they ever experienced the franchises that we're going to be talking about. Now, you pair obviously have a really, really extensive history with the franchise, so it goes back quite a bit. So, you know, when we had Alec on the show, he told us about watching Alien with Jim Cameron, and, and he worked on Predator. So, Tom, do you remember the first time, you know, you came across Alien or you came across Predator? Can you top that? Did you go see Alien with Sigourney? Can you do that good? <laughs> no, this was, a, this was so many years. This was very early in our in our relationship, me and Sigourney. So we weren't making, we, we, were, we weren't going public with it. Uh, oh, I just did. Uh, <laughs> no, my, my story, my story is rather charming because it's embarrassing and self-deprecating. But a friend of mine had an older brother in college and I was still in or I think I just started, whatever. He said, we've got to go see this movie that opens opens this afternoon. It, it, it's called Alien. And somehow, just because of the way he described it, and the fact that I had just read about this other movie called Dark Star, which was, was that Carpenter's? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. Carpenters. Yeah. So, so somehow I had in my mind, ah, okay, we'll go have some fun. You know, see this goofy movie. <laughs> and then they suddenly, within a minute after the opening credits, I realized, well, I'm not in that movie. And that was like a horrific movie in a good way. A horrific movie to sit through. It was, it just, you know, I, I, I recommend anytime you go see a scary movie, picture a stupid movie first, but with, with all due respect to John Carpenter. But uh, that was... Dark Star uh, was brilliant. It's, yeah. Like it was Tom. excellent. It was super charming. What about Predator? Did you did you get your hands in on that one or was that one you watched sort of after the fact? 
Predator we, we, I did a little bit of work at, at Stan Winston's shop. Then they went down to Mexico and, and neither of us went down to Mexico to be on set, you know, and, and we decided to stay back. We had the option to stay back and, and keep Stan's shop open, which meant turning it into sets for a short film that we were making with his permission, of course. So yeah, that's what I chose instead of instead of being on the set for a groundbreaking creature character movie like Predator. Alec and I were trying to get our own thing going. Well, it, you know, it led to something as well. It led to the, these first yeah. two great questions. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tom, another long-running argument on our message boards revolves around the alien skull, uh, the human skull, sorry, in HR Giga's original alien design and whether or not you're a fan of it. We know Alec isn't team skull, but Tom, what's your stance on that? Well, it's funny. I in the way that you see it on the in the film, you see it so little of it. You know, when you see it, it's cool. You know, it's I love the idea of layering. You know, translucent layers of things. If I had the option, you know, Cameron had had us had us go away from that look. Didn't didn't you sculpt the head? And I think there's some dimples on there, subtly disguised. That's that looks like some disguised eye sockets to yes, me. Yes, you're right. And that's because 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 James Cameron wanted to get rid of the shell. He he wanted to see all the the relief of the of the alien head and and a bone ridge down the center and and I believe that was all because of of the way he was planning to shoot. He didn't want a big shiny plastic or shiny smooth shell over top of everything. So I did. You're right. I did leave there. I left this. Uh, I left the temple kind of shape in there, but then smear smoothed off the entire front of the face, and that was under his direction. But I, I there was something. The only thing that that I would have a an, a question about it is is why is it a human skull you know it'd be cool if it was if it was something a little less human a little more alien um if we were going to show it i think i think it's the mac of a sort of aspect of it being a genuine you know genuine skull in there when geek was making it i think that's kind of one of the appealing things about it as well you mean because it's a, a real human skull yeah. is that true I, I mean you guys know better than the last thing I heard was when uh, David Fincher went over to, to Switzerland to see Giger at the beginning of Alien 3. Alec, didn't he say that, that Giger has his first wife's skeleton? That was his claim that it was the skeleton of his wife. I don't know how you would possibly get that. <laughs> <laughs> so where did, where did the second skull come from? <laughs> and uh, real quick, the Chet skull in AVPR, was that something that... They you guys wanted to try, or is that at the direction of the Strauss brothers? I think that was us. I think that was us saying it has taken on aspects of its host, right? So it grew inside of Predator, and Predators have eyes. And you could make the same argument for why the alien grew in John Hurt. So why isn't it a chain smoker? But, um, <laughs> but, uh, and partly it's like, well, if you're going to do that, let's commit to a more clear dome so that you really can see it, right? In, in the first film, what was kind of cool was I don't think I was even aware that there was a skull inside the first mm -hmm. film after a production pictures started coming out. So it was kind of just a big hint. So for me, I don't consider the design of the first head to even have those eyes, those eye sockets on it. Yeah, it was so subtle. You just you don't yeah. really see it. Yeah. So for purposes of of the film itself, to me, I, it's like they're not there. But after the fact, it's interesting, of course. And you can't argue with H.R. Deegers, you know, his his look and the visual language that he uses because he's H.R. Deeger and it's phenomenal. And so, like when I say I'm not Team Eye Socket, I feel like <laughs> it's just what was so cool about that alien. One of the many things is that it apparently did not have eyes. So how's it? How is it finding you? It's, and yet it can still find you and all that. That made it a little more, uh, a little more implacable, which I think is a great thing about that. 
but I'm looking at the head of the Pred Alien. If it, it's very heavy. Oh, gotcha. That that is one of my favorite design aspects of Chet. Yeah, that is really cool. And those cool prop ones are really nice. Yeah, I think this is the master for the uh, Sideshow Collectibles one, I believe, unless I'm wrong. Continuing on with Aliens, in the earlier script for Aliens, a new type of worker alien was introduced. It was a smaller white creature that tended to the queen, but it ultimately never appeared in the movie. Do you remember if there was any design work actually done on this creature? Those drones, right? Yeah. Yeah. I never saw anything, Tom. I know it was discussed, but I feel like we saw it, we read about it, but it was dumped pretty quickly, probably because of budget. Yeah, I don't remember seeing any any designs or anything other than just some, some talk about it early in the production, in the pre-production, which was our build time. I thought, that, I thought that would probably be the case. It would have been a, it would have been a Jim Cameron drawing anyway. Yeah, because he did a lot of con- conceptual stuff himself. Yeah, too. yeah, I don't yeah think- here's the other thing. No matter how bad your memory, you never forget a James Cameron drawing. <laughs> and as we all know, you both worked on Aliens Understand prior to forming ADI and basically becoming the Alien FX guys. So naturally, we have to make sure we ask you both about your time on Aliens. Tom, I think you were largely responsible for one of the earliest creature effects runtime-wise in Aliens, and that was Ripley's chest burster nightmare could you tell us a little bit about that one you're right that, that's the first thing that shows up in the film and and uh oh i remember let's see it's funny Stan, yeah we I had to do a um a torso casting of sigourney and uh, stan took me over to the dressing room to do that with him and and it's funny because i don't i don't remember stan doing a lot of hands-on work on aliens because he's you know he's the designer and he's and he's running running the whole, but for some reason he he was involved in doing that body cast of sigourney weaver so <laughs> that, that must have been an important one on his list so yeah so we just did it and we just did this shell and it was this kind of you know very simple trick where where she's lying on a slant board so her, her head is up like this and her arms are up like this and we put this the torso over her and was open the torso was open at the bottom so I could put the puppet in underneath and, and come up through a hole inside and, and I just remember it was it was a strange place to be introduced to Sigourney Weaver at <laughs> because she's laying this thing with her her legs aren't on either side of this of the slant board and then I'm pushed down inside and I have to reach up inside and, and I'm trying to puppeteer this thing and we're in between takes and uh, Jim Cameron says have you met Sigourney yet? <laughs> <laughs> nice to meet you yeah <laughs> So yes, that was uh, yeah, that was my indoctrination into the effects of aliens. You were both involved in filming the scene in which Bishop's torso splatters to the floor after the Queen rips him apart. I believe it was one of the more interesting effects that the both of you actually worked on in Aliens. So you know, how much fun did you have lobbing Lance Hendrickson around the um, around the set? It wasn't that much fun. Uh, it was fun building the stuff. But when you're on set with Cameron, you know, and, and, and you've spent a couple of months building stuff and you're proud of what you've done and, you know, the cosmetics are just right of it. And then he takes it and says, no, God damn it, like this and <laughs> face plants it into the uh, floor. And I don't even think the camera was running. I think it was just him demonstrating how he wanted us to toss this bishop dummy. But it was a great lesson. It was a great lesson in like that you can't become too precious about your work or too attached to it because after all, it does have to function on a set and be part of a movie. If, if you like build something that's so delicate or that you just want it to be nice and pristine after your day of shooting, why? I mean, you should beat the crap out of it so that it looks dynamic and that it looks, it looks great on film. But I think the first take, I, I sort of was like, when? Two, three. <laughs> yeah. He's like, no, <laughs> like this. 
but it was fine. I mean, other than like, you know, we've told the stories before of, I think we ran out of milk and yogurt products that we had in a ice chest at some point because we we're just shooting so much and so much was, you know, spewing all over the place that I ran and grabbed a milk bottle off the tea trolley. But by this point, you know, tea was long done and so was the milk. And Lance uh, came back the next day and he was, you know, buddy, I was up all night puking. <laughs> and uh because oh, it was spoiled and then we had to dress him in this crispy we didn't want to wash the costume he was wearing the upper half of the costume but it had been soaked with all the milk products and he said nah it's better to just leave it for continuity's sake right so he had to put this thing on that smelled sour and terrible oh man like, lance i'm so sorry and he said i'll use it buddy don't worry <laughs> now it's interesting in the behind the scenes stuff like how an alien and alien 3 when you guys did it like you used real like animal guts for the uh, the ox right like does that still happen in the industry or is is it all no and we were wrong to have done it then oh <laughs> uh, no wait did we use we did have you look there was this thing about this look everybody was going on about the first alien and how like inside the uh, the uh, alien egg there was this Queen Anne's Lace, I think it was called. It was some Not kind of... Nottingham's a, Lace. A what? Nottingham what? Lace. Nottingham Lace. And uh, yeah, so that, and that's that's an actual, uh, an actual actual meat product, right? It's a, it's a tissue. Or it was. That, yeah. and it was, right? And we were trying to find a way to, to come up with something that was artificial. And I can't remember, you know, the ox was built. It was all uh, synthetic synthetic hair and everything and and we had a bunch of guts i don't alex did we have real guts on the uh on the stage on the set the abattoir set for that yes because we we're going to shoot for like a few days right we had to get this these intestines and we just decided let's just have a, a refrigerator it was outside the workshop for that period of time and, and the shooting went on much longer than we thought so that meant that every day a guy from the abattoir would come and put a new set of, you know, the intestines in the freezer for us. And it would just sit there and we would go get it. And sometimes it would be kind of frozen and we had to pull it out. But it was, yeah, it was not good. Those are the, that's old school stuff where you use the, the entrails and, and just, you got to have gloves on. You got to make sure nobody rubs their face with this stuff because you get very sick from that and it just as the day would go on i think we've replaced it a couple of times during the day so there was a lot of a lot of this stuff and i can tell you it was awful <laughs> thanks for some good stories though i guess Aaron would get it <laughs> the, oh. the, the english uh, the english still use that term we don't so much but. oh we, we were talking before you arrived oh, about how squeamish oh, okay. i am I, I see what you did there. It took the American time, just got it, and that's why <laughs> we don't use that word. No, we don't use that word very often. Alec, you were you were talking about you know being precious about your props and your effects and stuff on set, and obviously over over time things like I mean, have, have you seen pictures of, of the original suit, the state that's in now? You know, with with the, the the latex degrading over time, is there any sort of like conscious effort, like you know, on on your guys's part to kind of preserve the work that you do? You know, because you have things like the statues and stuff made rather than the original suits on, yeah. sh on show well, display. And, and, yeah, and the answer, the, the, the reason for that, obviously, is because if we if we make, they're often made out of combination of, of fiberglass and urethane and, and pretty um, permanent materials. 
because we want them to be permanent and we pull them out of the original mold. So they look exactly the same. The number of people from the crew are still with us at the shop. So they're painted by the same people. So they're absolutely perfect replicas. Meanwhile, the suits, you're right, the suits do rot and they don't rot in the same way. Uh, I think um, Alien 3 suits went pretty quickly. In fact, I, by the end of the movie, we when we got back to the States, we only had one Alien 3 creature suit left, I believe. Is that right, Alec? Just one? I recall, yeah. And then Alien Resurrection, those lasted a little bit longer. But so many things happened to them on set. The slime that we use has some kind of a uh, some kind of trace amounts of a solvent in it because wherever it laid on the suit overnight, leaving it for continuity, that part of the suit would would de- has degraded. To, you know, it gets hard and crumbly. It turns to dust. Whatever latex is in there vulcanizes. So you know, I, I have seen suits from aliens that survived that, that collectors have given them a lot of love and put them on uh, on mannequins. And I think the reason those survived is because all of the sculpted bones and everything, those were all done with uh, uh, polyurethane foam. So, so they were already not a natural product. So they didn't, they didn't degrade that much. And I guess there wasn't as much to those suits anyway, was there with the, um, there was very little there, you know, it was really, it was, really was a spandex bodysuit with a, you know, a dozen foam pieces glued on and painted and, and done in such a way that they could be minimalistic. So it was all about movement for these guys that were inside the suits and not so much how it looks in, in the light of day. And as far as like the sideshow and the cool prop stuff, are you guys involved to a degree, just like making sure that they're faithfully keeping your designs when they when they make their products? Yeah, we have been, you know, particularly Sideshow and, and, and also Cool Props. We'll provide the masters that are right out of the mold so that they can, you know, we'll repose them or what have you. So they can remold them for their production runs. And then we will also do a paint master for them to match. And but Cool Props has done some of their own sculptures. And some of them are, are pretty good. I think the cool props, there's a lot of nice stuff out there. There's a, I, I shouldn't say something. There's a lot of really nice collectible pieces out there. Sometimes I have to look like there's so many dog aliens that have been done. I'm looking at pictures going, is that one of the ones that we made? Or did somebody sculpt that to match? And then it's also interesting to see how people interpret the design as well. Like we, we're very familiar with the sculpture of the miniature, for instance. And then you'll see someone who has sculpted a beautiful version of it, but you go, Oh, look at how they interpreted that detail as being something that goes in instead of coming out. Or look at how, how slender the, the hip joint is. So it's, it's because it's an interpretation. It's very interesting. But that's what led us to create our own art pieces from these. We did that. We got the license through Fox and did a bunch of our of our own pieces so that something out there would actually be 100% authentic from the molds that we used in the film, from the studio bus, from ADI that created the original, and that we would have some number of people who actually worked on the actual pieces. Yeah, that Studio ADI shop. I, I picked up a couple of those myself. I got that swimming alien sculpture as well as the, the Alien 3 logo embryo piece. I was curious, though. I know your shop's been down for a little bit. Are you guys planning on bringing that back? Not right now. The um, license has has lapsed. But the thing is that we, you know, people are used to prices of collectibles that come from places like China. And the hourly rate in China is very, very low. So you have to be in the frame of mind to say that, well, this is not a collectible. It's an art piece. And it's coming from the artists who actually made it for the film. And that's why it's three or four times more expensive than what you can get through pool props or, or sideshow. And both are valid. I, I feel bad that we can't sell a, a, 
big Queen Alien head, at, you know, quarter scale. I feel bad we can't sell that for twelve hundred dollars, but there are options for people who want that, even though they can't get it. the exact same thing that we are creating. They could get it from another source. So, but I don't think that we'll bring it back because it's um, it is very costly for us to do those things. They sold all right, but then you're into the, all the shipping stuff and then gets damaged in shipping and then you're kind of becoming Amazon as opposed to an art studio. Uh, gotcha. But, but it was, it was fun. It was a nice way to connect with fans and we're grateful for the people who, uh, who invested in them. And, and in a way, it makes them even more special if you don't do. And uh, if I remember my timelines rightly as ADI, you were attached to Alien 3 from a relatively early stage when Vincent Ward was still on the project. Were you actively designing anything with Vincent? No, I, he, he had his art department and they were they were churning out, you know, general thematic things like the planet itself that was built, you know, out of wood. And, and I think there was some costume stuff, you know, stuff that usually comes out pretty early in pre-production in as much to get the studio excited to say, oh, yeah, I see this movie happening. Let's let's go ahead and green light it. But as far as the creature stuff. I don't think we got into any of that at all. I, I remember the first, this was back when Alec and I would do our own drawings. This was a whole different world where we could sit down and do sketches that presented the concept of what the what was going to be different about the alien or any of the effects that are in it. But they didn't have to be photorealistic. This was before Photoshop. This was before um, any kind of digital manipulation. It was just pencil on paper. I remember being at the shop, having a phone a phone conference call with the producers, with Gordon Carroll and uh, and Alec and I. And, and then uh, he said, well, I think we're going to go forward, and but we're going to go with a different director. And I went home that night and I sat down. I just drew a picture of what Bishop looks like, which is basically how he was left from the last movie. And now he's wrapped up in plastic. And there was nothing, honestly, there was nothing special about it other than to say, okay, yeah, here's an image of what is going to be a character in the film. So that's changed quite a bit. But um, yeah, long way of saying saying no, none of that happened. We didn't really get involved until after Fincher was was on. The the appearance of the eggs and the facehugger in the opening credits of Alien Three has always been a point of conversation when it comes to um you know when it comes to the fans. Now, if I remember correctly, the addition of the egg was actually a later thing following test screenings, and we only see the one egg on screen, but the call sheet's actually mentioned too. Was that just an extra in case of accidents, or do you recall if we were, it was intended that we see the multiple eggs on screen to account for the multiple, you know, embryos? Are you sure we only see one on screen? Yes, just the the one stuck the next one, to the um, the Sulaco Island. Yeah, because I felt like yeah, I think we made two or three, but I felt like when we dressed those in, we we had a closed one and an open, but I can't. You know, honestly, Alien 3 has got so many versions of the film that I, I mix them up and then you get your memory of what you shot and that might not be what's in the film either. So I defer to you, but, uh, yeah, maybe it was, um, maybe it was just the one so that you could just say it was a single face hugger that carried the embryo. And one of the things we're curious about are the face huggers in Alien 3. It was originally supposed to be a brand new face hugger, uh, the super face hugger. We've seen photos of it and some footage of it made it into the assembly cut of the film. But how far did you go into that effect? Did you have a mechanical version? Did you know if there was more footage of it shot that ended up in the assembly cut? The only shot we did, we made a, a dead prop version, basically. But the only shot of it is guy standing next to the dead ox saying, we'll cease, or whatever. And it's just holding the holding the thing. It's, it's in kind of a wide shot. 
And I think that's in a director's cut. That's in the assembly cut, yeah. Yeah, but we never made mechanical versions of it because you know we did make a mechanical face hugger for the revised open that you mentioned. Was that made specifically for the, the, the reshoots then? Was that not something you had already? Um, no, actually, we did do that because, you know, what's the deal there? Because Tom, Steve Norrington mechanized that. That's right. And uh, it was a nice little finger mechanism. So we were going to use a traditional face hugger at some point, weren't we? Yeah, and I'm trying to remember. Uh, she's just asking you guys, what did we do? <laughs> How did you get a call sheet? <laughs> that didn't come from us. One of the other sites actually got hold of it's funny. One, one, one of the one of the guys who was involved in the re, in the reshoots as um, documentation. That's it's, cool. It's funny. From what I remember, that we always had the cracked cryo tube with dead newt in it, right? And then we had a we had the cryo tube that's in the that's in the film with the fingers, you know, reaching up, coming towards it like girl sleeping, face hugger creeping. But there were two fake face huggers, right? Because Sigourney carries. Yeah, it's a mislead because you think it's going. For for newts, but it actually implants in Sigourney and it's the embryo of the queen. Mm-hmm. I don't know why in England, yeah, there must there must have been there must have been a need for a traditional face hugger as well as the queen super face hugger. But I don't know guys, <laughs> it's all she <laughs> When talking about Alien 3, Michael Bean has mentioned that he heard about a puppet that depicted him being chest-bursted. I know that was depicted in one of the re- rewrites, but I've never actually seen mention of the puppet. Did you get as far as actually building that? Yeah, it wasn't a, it wasn't a puppet in that it didn't move. It was just a replica of him being kind of... His cryo chamber has been broken open and a big eye beam has come down basically and, and just, you know, destroyed his head and his hands are kind of up like this and it's just all this horrible meat. And, and that was that was one of the other few drawings that I did in terms of just show to be able to show to, to Finch and say, look, this is what we think happens to, to Michael Bean. He says, sure, great. And then, uh, you know, that was all sculpted as a just a full on polyfoam replica. But for me, it went back to when I was when I was uh, early years in college, I would I would I was working part-time as a, a stringer for the local news channel and and the guy that had been doing it before handed over a 16 millimeter camera and he said here you write to the studio this and you film and i remember one morning i got a call that there had been a train accident two trains had, had collided about 45 minutes away and, and it, it was it was snowing it was wintry and i remember driving out just to get a couple of shots for the news and what i didn't shoot was first time i had ever seen a uh, a dead body and that's basically what from the neck up what this guy had looked like and I, I, I sort of conjured that up again in my mind while it was being designed and sculpted so it it, it actually exists but but again now is there a version out there where it's in the film but you see that kind of one yeah yeah but but that i think that was always more very you know that that was the safety the ironic safety beam you know death rather than this chest burst of death that michael bean thought he was fated to have so was, yeah. was it always was it always it was always out from this yeah it was always it was always because of the crash of the of the ship and it had nothing to do with him being uh, uh violated by a a, a face hugger but it did have something to do with his objections to them using his likeness. So we did get the word from production. We got to show Hicks dead in the in the cryo chamber, but we cannot see his face. They, uh, had, the, they had the rights to use a photograph, I believe, of him. And then Tom raised his hand and said, hey, you guys, I used to be a stringer. And I saw a dead <laughs> Now, Tom was very excited <laughs> about that. But, yeah, that was a cool, like, okay, well, you know, we're here to, you guys, I don't know whether it's ethical or legal for you to use Michael Bean's likeness, but that was the solution. And, and I think Tom was the one that suggested he just be 
you know, I beat Mike Hughes head. I think and that one's only in the assembly court. That's interesting that the question, as you put it, was, was there a, a puppet, like a puppet Michael Bean? Is that what you're asking? I think that those was his words, I think. Uh, yeah, Michael's. So that, that's, that's kind of, that's interesting how these communication things go, because you probably read a script or somebody, you know, got him a script or whatever, and maybe there was something that people always use the term puppet, like, well, no, it's not a puppet, it's a dead body. And it's a, is it a replica of you or is it, a, you know, so there's all like nuances that get missed when people are really, uh, you know, upset that the directors decided to kill yeah. beloved characters from the previous film. <laughs> How do you guys feel about that? Do you wish? I love it. I mean, there is something to be said for the the real dark tone that Alien 3 goes for, which I'm sure was really jarring for audiences, you know, coming off the high of Aliens and going into that initially in theaters like, oh, my God. But I I feel like especially with the assembly cut, Alien 3's status has definitely been elevated. Mm -hmm. In the 26th of January, 1991 draft of Alien 3, there was a scene in which a fetal queen crawled out of Newt's mouth and then into Ripley's mouth on the EEV. It ended up being depicted in the comic adaptation, but there isn't any version of the film. Did you ever build a fetal queen and were these scenes ever shot? Nothing was built. We, we um, so, so nothing was shot of a, of a, I remember there was talk right, of, of the, of seeing it come out of her mouth, but it never, for us, it, it never went beyond the talking stage. We, we complained about that actually, because we were going like, what the hell is a facehugger crawling in and out of people's mouths for? What's the, is this just a writer who is disinterested in the, or are we trying to say something different about the life cycle of the creature that a facehugger crawls in and out of your mouth? I don't know. But the fetal queen embryo, as it is in the film, is in the scans. Uh, yeah. The scan so uh, on, on the topic of, you know, the, the fetal queen and the queen chestbursters, and one of the really fun things about this hobby is researching for articles and videos and, and interviews and coming across these nuggets that don't really get spoken about that often. So uh, last last year, I did a piece on the deleted hive sequence from Alien 3, and I came across some really interesting bits that I hadn't heard about before. And one that really surprised me, Alec, was you saying that the addition of the queen chest burster was something that sort of came a bit late to you, and you had to quickly then add a crest to the um, the existing chestburster sort of um, designs and models that you already had. Was that in reference more to the, the, the reshot sequence at the end where you know it, it bursts out of out of Ripley um as she's falling or, or was that you know about the the one in the scan in in the chest cavity it sounds a little like I was lying <laughs> uh yeah I don't know what I was referring to in that particular article but let's see maybe the addition of the the chest burster coming out of Sigourney was a later it was definitely shot in Los Angeles so maybe that like you know the thing when she's in mid-fall and comes out she grabs it that's well we were testing that though in London weren't we Tom mm-hmm. fully aware of the thing so no I take that back it was just stuff that didn't get shot I guess so we always knew then that the chest burster would come out and she would hold it I don't think that it was particularly last minute desperation or me heroically adding a crown to something else because there were, there were sculptures that, you know, were dedicated sculptures to, to those things. I did sculpt the queen chest burster that she holds onto. And I don't know. It does feel like, like you have to understand that when the production shut down, we ended up gaining a whole bunch of time on the build 
they shut down they were rewriting even before principal happened but it wasn't we weren't able to really work on a lot of the alien stuff we were able to like work on dead bodies and put fingerprints on dead hands and things that would never show so it might have felt like uh, some of the preacher stuff was comparatively rushed but I, I, it sounds like i was just trying to make myself feel <laughs> If you had any alien film where it hasn't been sort of like problematic or rushed or anything, I mean, um, AVP was was really short for you, and then Resurrection was even shorter. Alien Three's a historical train wreck. I mean, how, how did like Resurrection or the or the Predator go in terms of the the creature work? Were they were they actually not you know not a race to the finish line kind of thing for you? You, you mean know. when we added the Predator with AVP movies? Is that what you guys are? Just like how intense the pre-production process was, like, what, did you always feel really short on time before, like, to get everything ready for filming? I just want to say I'm, st- I'm, I'm still in my mind, I'm still riffing off the fact that you, you guys had a call sheet. And then, and then when Aaron says, now on December 12th, <laughs> and I and I hear his voice, not so much, not so much here, Adam. I hear Aaron's voice, and I suddenly feel a picture a powdered wig and black robes, and and I just feel like I did something really wrong, didn't I? <laughs> You're about to go to the gallows, sir. <laughs> historically, historically, look, this is this is this is the big difference between working on a on a, on a studio movie. And working on an independent, small independent movie. And the studio movie is going to require so many pre-production hoops. I'm not being sarcastic, you know, so many pre-production soups that you have to get through it and accomplish in their order, which doesn't really take into account that we have to get all the, you're going to start shooting on this date. And especially now with CG movies, we're going to finish shooting on this date and then we're going to do all the post-production. But we have to build everything back here. And back here on the big studio movies, well, they're, they haven't really released any cash yet. And our, our build schedule just gets shorter and shorter on all of them, on all of them. It's, it's, I don't think there is such a thing as a comfortable build schedule. At least we haven't had them because to me, then, you know, well, surprise, maybe the studio is right. If it's a comfortable build schedule, then it's a lazy build schedule because, but we're really just, you just hit the ground running and, and you never stop until you're done shooting. And then you go on to a, uh, a podcast and. <laughs> Your whole life crumbles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so sometimes you do your best work under pressure, I guess. I well, that's what I, that's what they say, isn't it? You know, um, artists strive yeah. under pressure. It's very true. It's, it's very so true. Yeah. I, I love that other uh, quote. I can't remember who said it, but that a work of art is never finished. It's merely abandoned. So you get yeah. always filled with more detail and more noodling and all that stuff. So it's in a way having those parameters is a godsend because you have to finish it guaranteed. I think it was Da Vinci. Maybe I'm wrong on that. I think mm. Maybe. So again, talking about that hive sequence, we know you guys started building cocoons for the sequence and that Fincher had you finish one for his own his own purposes, the thinking shell, I think he called it. But, but we've never seen pictures of the completed cocoons. And I always thought that they looked like they were taking more, you know, you know, from the work in, in progress stuff that you guys have shot, well, have shown. I always thought it looked like you were taking inspiration from the original egg morphing scene from Alien rather than Aliens' as hive. Yes. Was is, is, is that the direction you've been going in? This is funny. Alec, don't say anything. Don't okay. say anything. I can see Tom's. It, I'm Tom. shutting. Where's my turn off? Mike. <laughs> so, first of all, Tom totally made up the thinking, Fincher sh- thinking thing. So, Tom. What? 
Made up the what? You remember that, Tom? There was a period there where we were having such a great time with David Fincher because it was fun. We're all about the same age and all that kind of stuff. And then we thought it would be funny if we made stuff up. Oh, yes. When we did interviews and then he would read it later and go, what the hell? So Tom had a few good ones. Yeah, it was like, uh, yeah, early, early interviews. We said, yeah, David Fincher is a funny guy. Uh, you know, he would direct, but he would direct from a, sitting up in his chair wearing a cowboy hat. He just, he wouldn't take the cowboy hat off ever, ever. Tom told the, somebody, uh, you know, Cinefantastique or somebody that we made David Fincher an alien suit and he would direct in an alien suit with a cowboy hat on. <laughs> and then the thinking shell, I, I Come to think of it, Tom, I think I was just laughing while you were doing all this stuff. <laughs> the thing oh, no. was, oh, no. made him a cocoon, and he sat in this cocoon. But the, the truth is, none of the cocoons ever even got molded. We did the, we did sculpt them in clay, but we never got to this point of molding them. And yes, you are correct, Aaron. We, did, we were looking more at the kind of stuff that was going on in the deleted scenes of Alien than maybe some of the other uh, ones. It was Tom. You lying such and such. I'm going to go get my white wig and my gavel, and I'll be right back. <laughs> you guys have, you guys, this is a scoop. This is the first. No one has ever busted us slash Tom uh, <laughs> on, on those, uh, on those early, uh, I, we were actually kind of disappointed that they didn't get noticed more. Yeah. Nobody ran with them. Is Hollywood that weird that you can make things up like that and it would seem believable? Didn't you have a bone to pick with some of the reporters anyway? Because they did run with stuff that got you in trouble with, like, uh, Giga. Oh, that was just the one. That was, uh, would that have been Cinefantastique? Or I can't even remember the name of the article. Was that Cinefantastique? I, I remember the Cinefantastique one was, was after Aliens. We came back and Rick on our on on the crew answered a bunch of questions that went right. in, went into got published before the movie came out and yeah. Gail Hurd was really upset. Gail Hurd was uh, was saying don't talk to Cinefantastique. and then I think it might have been them that on Alien Three when that came out we did an article and it was a hatchet job, right? Remember that? Mm-hmm. It was like we would say something like, "Yeah, Giger was in Zurich. He didn't want to come to London, and he was submitting designs." to David Fincher. And meanwhile, Fincher was asking that we also do designs based on H.R. Giger's work. And it was a nice coincidence and not a big surprise, but the work that Giger was submitting was very similar, coincidentally very similar to what we were doing, because of course, it's based on Giger's work anyway, right? From from his Necronomicon. So what that article said was, you know, Woodruff and Gillis claim that it's a coincidence that their alien looks like <laughs> what? Just trying to stir drama then. Yeah, yeah and uh, and I think that article kind of fomented some negativity in Giger's mind because Giger was very initially very complimentary of everything that we were doing. Even when the film came out, we didn't talk to him that much. But when the film came out, he complimented us about how great the alien looked. And then after some time went on, he really soured on, on us, which was too bad. We reached out to him and tried to communicate. We actually had worked to protect his credit because the, we noticed that the credits were going to say alien designed by Woodruff and Gills. We're like, no, 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 that's not the case. We are in charge of the alien effect. And we wanted to make sure that Eager was protected there. But those, those kind of things, you know, it was by, by the time he was already soured on us. There was another similar situation, which which might have been in Cinefantastic, where we were talking about how we sculpted the alien to look like what was in Giger's Necronomicon book. And, and particularly when it came to painting it, we said, let's paint it. Let's use this palette, all these 
soft, warm brown colors. And I think in the interview, it was, yeah, we, we wanted to make our alien, the alien on screen, look more like Giger's original work than what he did on the first movie. Because there are some quite a few subtle differences. And somehow that got retranslated as Woodruff and Gillis wanted to make something better than what Giger did. That's what they got. For, that's what they gleaned. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they basically, you know, there was a, a movement for a while there that was Woodruff and Gillis are arrogant uh, upstarts who think they're better than Giger. And we would see that in early chat rooms when the Internet was taking off. And uh, it came a lot from England, I must say. Here it is. Here's the art. The writer's name is Tim Prokop. And as I recall, the article itself wasn't that bad. It was the little headlines and shit that they pulled out that made you think that if you didn't really read the article, you, you wouldn't really think. But yeah, that I was going to do a post about this and I just decided why. We have such tremendous respect for, for Giger. And what we always thought of our role in this was as caretakers of his design. We were, we were disappointed on Aliens that Cameron didn't bring Giger in. And as it turned out, Cameron was fully capable between him and Stan. They were, they were fully capable of doing phenomenal and respectful alien work. But it was, it was very different. Those suits looked very different. But that's the cool thing about the xenomorph is that it does change. You know, so there's room for, for that kind of thing. But yeah, so we were a little saddened when it went sour on, uh, with uh, our relationship with Giger. But what can you do? Yeah. We, I think, you know, part of it is that Giger established the language. He was the pioneer. He was genius and the revolutionary fine artist, right? And we are creature designers and creature builders, commercial artists for motion pictures. And so we are probably come out of in a different way, a little less of a sexy way, perhaps, than a lot of fans want it to be. You know, like Giger really literally was the dark genius, right? And we are not that personality type. So we probably, to some people at that time, particularly having been fair, a new company, people didn't really know who we were and thought we were posers and imposters and all that. And in fact, we did lie to uh, interviewers. We've established that, Your Honor. Now, I'm, I'm kind of worried about <laughs> the, 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 the accuracy of the questions in this. No, it's fun. I, actually, this is a big, this is a lot of fun for me that dispelling this stuff is nobody's yeah. ever asked us this. So good job. Thank you. Out of curiosity, though, did you guys ever eventually make it out to the museum in Gruyere? I never did. No. Definitely well, yeah, right. we, we actually early on, early on when we were in England on Alien 3, we got a uh, phone call. There were two phone calls that came in from Giger, one early on inviting us to go to his studio in Zurich and see the model that he'd, he'd done a wet clay sculpture. And it was too big for him to get out of his basement or out of his workshop. And he wasn't really prepared to mold it. So he invited us to come over. And then the Fox over in London said, nope, you can't. You cannot go over there. You can't go see it and have a, any time uh, uh, with Giger, which I think was. They didn't want to pay for it, basically. Yeah. They said, we're not. Was it just a traveling? I thought it was because they just didn't want to have any kind of a connection if Giger was going to start saying that we were ripping him off. Well, I think what what, uh, we were asking them to send us and that we would mold it there, we would come back with a mold. And they said, like, well, what are you going to do with it? Because it is the, the design the director really wants. It's in the ballpark, but it's not. We have all the pictures of it we need. Can you make a suit out of that thing? And we're like, no, it's kind of like a bottle relief sculpture. No, we can't. But we thought it's gear, you know, and, we, and we're being invited, right? We should do this. To your point, Tom, I think there may have been some behind the scenes stuff where there was already a distancing that was happening between Fox and Giger that we were unaware of. And then there was there was one day where we're shooting on the stages 
at Pinewood and I had to run back to our workshop at Pinewood Studios and grab something. And I just remember just as I was running in the studio, the phone was ringing. I picked it up and it was Giger on the phone. And he was asking me how production was going. Oh, it's going well. Thank you. He said, let me ask you a question. He wanted to know if if we knew where his check was, where his checks were. And I said, I don't know. You really need to talk to production. And I gave him the production number for the, the unit production manager and the name and end number and and, uh, and all of that stuff. So obviously he was not being well treated through whose fault. I don't know. But it, it was, you know, it's just a, a really weird call to, to field. I think Giger had expectation you know he didn't he had not at that point worked on a lot of movies but he did work on alien and he had a close relationship with ridley scott and i think that's just what his assumption was that's how it works right but he didn't he also was not willing from what we heard he was not willing to come to london to work in the shop he wanted to be stay home in his studio and, and do everything that he could do, but uh, not come and be part of the actual production. So I think that may have, I, I'm guessing here, but that may have put the studio in a position of saying, well, like, well, what are we paying for? We have a team here that can create all this stuff. So you're a production designer. You're sending us things that we will decide whether we like them or not, right? And that's not at all how it was with Ridley Scott. And it, it's not how like us as fans would necessarily have viewed Giger. But I think then he sort of started seeing us as part of this problem or maybe even that I believe there's an there's a quote in some magazine where he said, I believe that Mr. Woodruff and Gillis have put a worm in the director's ear and uh, simply was not the case. And as Tom said, we, we used his Necronomicon book as our reference. So the thing is just infused with Giger's look. It's not a departure. It's It's his. It wouldn't be what it is without his body of work. But what can we say? We have tremendous respect for him as an artist, and I can certainly understand how a fine artist would be driven mad by the decisions of the studio. Just the joys of the miscommunication and that, the nightmare that was Alien 3. <laughs> and you know what? Here's another thing, though. From our point of view, it wasn't that bad. We always like chuckle because there's such a big hype made about what a disastrous production it was. And well, there was a shutdown. They built a bunch of sets, but the sets got used. They rewrote the script. They shouldn't have gone into the into production with kind of two competing ideas that they were trying to blend in. Yes, absolutely. But from a standpoint of the production, it was never, it never felt like other than the studio having to eat costs. And we had a great time and did some work that I think still holds up today. So um, and you guys probably had the most fun on that set, right? That I mean that was the movie's Academy Award nomination, wasn't it? Was the was the effects? Is that the only is that the only one that it got nominated for? Did it get any others, Aaron? Do you know? I don't think there was anything for acting. That was all aliens from what I remember. Right, but I mean like sound effects, anything else or not that I remember. But I, I don't really remember the awards very well. Gorgeous sets. Norman Reynolds, another mm-hmm. Eng- English genius. Yeah, great stuff. Yeah, so we have we have fond memories, but I can understand where, like, that was in the day, like, I think ever since Days of Heaven, right, the press has just loved to jump on problem-plagued productions. And I think they generally, despite it being a flawed film, and maybe it underperformed because of the expectations, those are conceptual problems that how do you follow a movie like Aliens up with a smaller, darker, more cloistered film? 
But it was an attempt to get back to what worked in the first film. So you got to give it props for that, I think. Definitely. But I, I don't know. We had a great time and our crew was just amazing. If you, if you IMDB everybody that's on that crew now and look at their list of accomplishments, how many Oscar winners that, that crew produced and Stephen Norrington who direct, we know, you know, went out to direct Blade and uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and just tons and tons of talent was in that room on our crew. It was a really a, a fantastic time. But it wasn't you, it wasn't your longest running guy on Alien 3 as well, wasn't Yuri on that? Yeah, that was, it was very, Unusual, and there, and there, you know, that's sort of harkens back to that earlier question about, you know, there, or the earlier answer there that um, you know, have had comfortable build schedule. I guess, I guess this is the the one thing that that was, you know, it really was long and drawn up. And we fans love to debate, and this is one debate I'm curious to hear your thoughts on. If you knew of any intention from the actual production, was Bishop Two an advanced android, or was he actually human? You mean uh, Lance with the red blood at the end? Yeah, yeah. He was. My recollection was that he was he was human. That was the whole point of of having him get hit and knock his ear off to see red blood. You guys still discuss that? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. That, still that, a debate. that goes on forever, especially yeah. with Lance and AVP, because then it's like, well, is he an ancestor of Bishop Two if he's a human? Or I mean, there have been some androids in the lore that have red blood as well. So could he just have been an advanced model that's more disguised? So oh, that's interesting. It's in, it's interesting because it seemed like a. Uh, it just seemed it's back in the day. I mean, this was, was you know, you know, 30 years ago. It just seemed very clear that, that they would get that. And that was I know there were I don't know how big the comic books were by then at that point. But I, but I have a feeling started. a lot of this stuff came up afterwards, you know, kind of kind of looking back into the past, knowing, oh, hold on. These guys planted this ahead of time. They knew that he was going to be an advanced model and have red blood and, and everything like that. But no, at the time, it was just that, that he really was the, the originator of the synthetic and, and was coming back to try to convince Ripley to give herself up. I love that there's a question about that. I think that's so fascinating. It just shows you that movies, they have a life of their own that doesn't belong to the creators of, of the film. But there's not a, but that's my point, Ali. There's not a question anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but can we trust, can we trust that response? Is, uh, is the yeah. yeah. Well, that's that's the way David Fincher explained it to me when he was dressed in his alien suit and cowboy hat. So I said, okay. In his thinking shell. <laughs> and in the same vein of the Bishop 2 question, another one of those lingering details that just sets fan imagination light was the scar on Ripley 7. I don't believe it's a detail that's specifically mentioned in any of the scripts. So I was wondering if that was a little touch you guys added and what was the story there? You talking about in Resurrection? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Seven being the clone that dies on the table. Yeah, the one that she uses the flamethrower on. Oh, the scar in her chest where she's had a she's had a uh, a chestburster removed. Oh, okay. Potentially. Well, well that, that's the point. We don't know. It, it's just one of those details that's on right, the fact. Right. So, so I guess I would ask, and and again, you know, we see so many different versions of this you know, films that I that it, I get like I don't know if like did I dream this or is this a but uh, so we become even less reliable than you guys. But uh, <laughs> we did the scene where uh, number eight is having right. She's got a scar on her chest, doesn't she? Yeah. So she's had an embryo removed from her because they're trying to clone aliens, but they're accidentally keep creating human beings or keep tainting the human host with alien DNA. So why wouldn't? Why is it a question? Why wouldn't they have removed a chestburster from from number seven? What's the debate? 
if they managed to get one out of her, what would be the point of number eight? I think is the question. So, well, it's probably deformed just like she was. It wasn't a, yeah. a oh, proper I, embryo. Yeah, I like that. So then the queen that's in that film grew really super fast, right? Oh yeah, they've got an accelerated. That's why the newborn could grow, and it grows in a womb like it was supposed to be. That was the human influence, but it's an external egg sac, but also a live birth, right? And she gestates very quickly. Is all that stuff clear in that movie? I think in general, yes. Yeah. Yeah, when, you know, when it comes to that kind of stuff. Yeah, another thing we get, I saw a, somebody commented and said, Woodruff Gillis taking shit from fanboys since 1992. <laughs> but uh, people have complained about the quote unquote beast style of uh, that was established in Resurrection, which, as I understand that term, means that it's got a more organic look. This was another thing people groused about it. You know, we were being uppity and we thought we were better than Giger and we were changing the rules of biomechanics or throwing biomechanics out in favor of a softer, squishier look. But it's in the story. It's in the script that these are crossed between humans and aliens. So it has to affect them in some way. And that's what we came up with. And then we, because of budgetary purposes, we, on AVP, we kind of got stuck using those same molds to create our bodies. I think we re-sculpted the heads uh, and hands, maybe, but maybe we didn't re-sculpt the heads. No, you did, you did the hands for AVP because Anderson wanted them beefier. And right. then I think the neck and the head for AVP are. That's right. You're right. I have a question. What did Alec have for breakfast this morning? <laughs> <laughs> Alec, what did you have for breakfast? Your Honor, I haven't eaten today <laughs> because I'm intermittent fasting, which is why I'm a cranky bastard. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, that, so th- those kinds of things. Like I thought, oh, this is great. We're you know we've got clones that are humans that have touches of aliens, and then we got aliens that have touches of human. In them. But no beast. We unleashed the beast. So one of, one of the design elements of, of Resurrection's worry that I think sets it apart a lot from the first three as well is the way in which the head sort of tapers off towards the end rather than the more penile look to it. Given um, Jean-Pierre Jeanette's fondness of the cockroach, I was wondering if that was a deliberate thing to, you know, further evoke the roach. Hmm. That, flat, that flat kind of like a flat belly of a, of a cockroach. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like that touch came from you, Tom. Well, yeah, I know there, there's certain things. It's like, it's like uh, again, the joke that I made in some interview. It's like, uh, oh, yeah, this is now the alien. This is a new model alien. And, and this year it has cup holders. And it was like in a, an effort to say, you know, as, a, as an artist, you, you don't want to just blindly repeat what was done before. And so we would make changes along the way within the sculpture. And, it, and they were never they were never subversive in any way. You know, Aaron, I just heard you say penis and cockroach. I don't <laughs> not the same. We would. But but, you know, if we made an adjustment to a sculpture or added some details or, or something like that, we we never felt challenged enough to show pictures to the director, because once you open that door, you never close it. And we and we know from experience that, that you suddenly can't ever get your work done because that becomes a thing where the director wants to, depending on the director, wants to control every little every little button, every little switch, and, and just eats up an enormous amount of time. So I think whatever changes came to the head, I think, Alec, that was uh, ultimately turned over to Jordu, and he came up with a look in a maquette that was really cool. And that's what we ended up going with. So at, at that point, it Went, it went to uh, Jordi Shell for the actual design input for what the head looked like, particularly the back. Yeah, and we did do some versions. 
Certainly. But, you know, that that's how it goes. We throw a lot of ideas out there and then the director gets to pick and choose. So it, it could be that, you know, I know that Jean-Pierre really, he did reference a cockroach. He liked the colors of the cockroach. And, and, and so it could well be that that's why it appealed to her. Yeah, even if even if you guys did have to end up going with the same molds for AVP, I got to say, I really did like that design in black. I thought it looked really good. Another piece of, of the design, though, that I was curious about was there's like like a spike or something in between the dorsal tubes. And it's in your book. It's in your making of AVP book. But I don't believe the aliens had them in, in the film. Yeah, it's the fishbone. Yeah. Yeah, it, it gets in the way of the head when you look up. It's banging into that head. So it was sort of a clip-on thing that we could choose to use or not use. Hmm. And, and mostly, I think we didn't use it, at least in uh, AVP. I don't think we used yeah. it in, in Resurrection either. No, no it wasn't in, in Resurrection. But in, in the uh, start of your making of AVP book, you see one of the alien suits has it. But I don't believe in the film that they do. I think one of the more intriguing visuals from Resurrection was the Viper Pit. Rather than design and constructing a creature, you were creating a living set for this scene. Was that a particularly challenging effect for you because it was so different to what you normally do? I don't think the, I think the challenge was the size of it and making the movements organic. It took a ton of people crawling in under this, this these foam. Like we did what we do one sculpture. Right. And we molded one big like I think a eight foot by eight foot sculpture. And then we tiled it, you know, turned it and tiled it together. So we had a huge, uh, I think, 16 by 16 foot area or maybe it was eight by eight area. I don't remember the size. It was, it was bigger. I feel like it was at least 20 feet. And it was longer, I believe. Wait, did the camera spin over? The camera spun, so it was a square. Giant square. And we had to have a slot in the opening that, that Sigourney could slowly, you know, drop down inside of. And it's all covered with slime, so it was hard to get, you know, when you had to, when she had to walk out and get into position, she's sliding. The people that are taking her out are sliding. But the... Um, the thing that I thought was cool was back in the early 80s, this very famous photographer, fashion photographer, Richard Avedon, had done this portrait of Natasha Kinski, you know, lying nude on her side with a boa constrictor wrapped around her to, you know, to make it not stark nudity, but but to make it, you know, a sensual, sensual thing. And I remember thinking that was always a cool look. So I asked Sigourney if she'd be interested in, in if we had time to do something where we could kind of copy that look, but it's the alien intertwined with the Ripley. And Ripley would be nude and the alien is just covering things up. She really wanted to go for it. And, and we decided, well, on this background, this is a place to do it. But production wasn't completely <laughs> in league with us. And Sigourney wanted it. So she got, so the producers, so Fox said, yep, you got to screw, screw you producers that are trying to get a movie made. Sigourney wants this. You're going to do it. So Sigourney got a photographer lined up and I got in the suit and we did all of that. And I think it was like the next day, Alec and I got called into the producer's office. Very accomplished, but built by a lot of a very accomplished producer and he said uh, he was just trying to figure out from somebody why things were going so slow and he's sitting behind this big desk and he said oh, i don't know he said this wacky this wacky space woman wants to do a, a you know a nude photography shot in the middle of trying to make a movie <laughs> and i remember sitting there very quiet and thinking, oh, God, does he know? <laughs> you pitched the whole idea. Yeah, I pitched it. I pitched it and then I thought, okay, I guess that's what we're going to do next. I never saw the pictures. I don't know how it turned out. They never got released. So maybe it wasn't quite the effect that, that Sigourney was hoping for. 
I was curious about a seemingly deleted scene towards the end of AVP, Alien vs. Predator. In the novelization, Grid Alien makes it out of the ice tunnel to the surface with the Queen, and we actually see Grid on the surface in one of the trailers. How significant was Grid's role on the surface before this was cut? Really? He's on the surface with the trailers? Yeah, there's a shot where you see him outside in the whaling station. It's like looking up through the tunnel, and then you see Grid on the surface. It's this very brief shot from one of the early trailers. How does Grid die? Does he die? Does he get his back of his head blown off? The explosion in the movie, the explosion kills... One of the other aliens gets his head blown off, and then the alien is kind of pushed towards Grid and the group of aliens, and that's when Scar and Lex jump on the sled. Explosion happens and kills all the the warrior aliens there. But somehow Scar was... Yeah. That was a very dense script that had tons and tons of little action stuff and a lot of second unit, third unit, fourth unit, fifth unit stuff going on. So it's possible that uh, we don't remember this because there was so much going on and there was a... And, and it's also possible that they started shooting it and went like, you know what, we've only got you know six days left shooting. What can we cut? So I don't remember suiting Grid up. I mean, it would have been you, Tom. You were, you were the... I don't know. I don't know, guys. Just tell us what you want us to say. <laughs> <laughs> okay, moving on then, I guess. Um, until Requiem and since, you know, the, the aliens have always been depicted with the smooth heads. Was it nice to actually get back to that ridged look when working on Requiem's alien? You know, especially since you, you know, you sculpted that, Tom, the original. Well, yeah. I mean, I sculpted the one for aliens, right? I don't remember if I did Alien 3, but Alien 4 and, uh, you know, that was a different guy, different sculpture. No, I don't know. It was like, it, I loved I loved the idea that the uh, different dome on it, right? Is that what the biggest, is that, was that the biggest change for the uh, Alien Warriors in Requiem? Yeah, it, it was a chainsaw. Yeah. yeah. No, no, no dome at all. Oh, that's right. It was just a, a, a sculpted surface that had yeah. some interesting relief and ports in it and yeah. bone structure. That's right. That's right. The Lost Brothers loved Aliens. That was the first Alien film they saw. They said that uh, when they were little, they were in a hotel, and when their parents would go to dinner, they'd turn on Aliens and watch it over and over and not know that they were getting charged every time they got busted on it. They loved the head that Tom did in, in Aliens, so that's what they wanted for record. Yeah, I really do like that that design in, in Requiem, especially the neck. Uh, you guys did bring more of the biomechanical details, I think, in the in the neck of that warrior. We did. I think that was an Akihito sculpture of the neck. If I'm not wrong, but yeah, we wanted to really like get some of that precision back because there was, you know, it worked for it worked for uh, Resurrection, and then we were, as I said, we were stuck with it on uh, maybe P, but this allows us out to sort of re-art direct, so we're not just doing the same thing every time. So speaking of brand spanking new things then, you know, being one of the centerpiece creatures of the film, obviously Requiem's Predalien went through a lot of design. Um, and the story goes that the finished design was then heavily influenced by the studio and um, because of the reactions that some kid had and you guys weren't too keen on it. So if you worked on another AVP and were asked to design a new Predalien, is there any sort of approach that you think that you'd take with a new iteration of the hybrid? Wow. I think I made the wrong choice to say, don't send the questions to me ahead of time. 
Short answer is yeah. You know, artistically, yes. They absolutely would want to do something. It would come down to how much, if you're saying, okay, theoretically, we have the freedom to do it. Yes, absolutely. I don't have any specific things that I'd look at. I was never really crazy about the feet on the newborn, but but that was partly wanting to make that lake shape that didn't look like a human being. So, you know, and people always refer to it as a dog leg, but really what it is, there's a, you know, there's a shoulder. I mean, there's a, a hip, which is like similar to a shoulder. Elbow is the knee. The wrist is the ankle, and then the, the it comes down to the toe, the toe pad, and that's where people think it's 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 a backwards jointed leg. There's aspects of actually the way Alec is holding is wrestling with it. It's scary. Uh, no, there's actually there's I do like the I like the weighted the weightiness of, of the chest and the size of the head. There's something when you build that up, it makes the it makes the leg seem a lot more slender. There'd probably be a lot of these details that that would be different. I mean, it's a cool looking. It's a cool looking thing. I'm, I, I think that thing with you know with the kid. We had a panicky uh, executive who showed it to a kid, and uh, you know we were well underway. I'm still sculpting, but this kid says uh, said it looks like a cool alien, and uh, we're like, it is an alien. And he goes, yeah, but it's uh, he didn't say predator, right? Well, the idea is that it's 80% alien and uh, 20% predator or whatever. And then we're like, he's saying, yeah, but it should be 40, 60 or whatever. Like, okay, what do you want done, right? And then I I think for me, I I can tell you specifically what we changed. It was probably more like an alien and we just, we added more elements of the predator to it. But like like this dome, uh, this dome was probably always there. This is meant to reflect kind of the shape of a predator but then we kind of expanded out that cowl area where the dreadlocks come and push that back. It was really like, even now when I look at it, I think like, yeah, we were trying to avoid the kind of obvious thing where like stick uh, dreadlocks on an alien, right? And, and we ended up doing exactly that. So we had some other designs. If you look in our books where we had like quills and stuff, you know, that kind of, we thought those were more interesting. Like it's not just cut parts of a predator off and stick them on an alien. It's it's happening in a DNA level where it influences the overall design of the thing. It's coming out in interesting ways that might be unpredictable or might be a little less on the nose. But that said, it's a pretty good design and it, and it does work. Put mandibles on an alien. These were the things that we were like when we were reading, like we got to just not do the obvious. And it ended up maybe being a little more obvious, but also there is what they call the easy get, right? Like this definitely looks like you can see Predator and Alien in it. So in that respect, it's very successful. And we should give a shout out to the artist. Steve Wang was big on this. Steve Wang was a big part of the original Predator. So he has a really great style and a very kind of sculptural look. You know, he really nails the kind of geekery stuff and all that. If I step back, I sometimes see this thing getting a little bit of criticism when I see pictures of it on set. People will say, oh, that's a bad design. It's uh, imbalanced because from the hips up, it looks big. And then it's got those little stubby legs on it. And the, the point of that is that we were building the set, the, the suit, to be used in a film, not to be seen as a mock-cat or in full body. You would never see the entire thing in full body. You would see cuts of the shots of the feet, you know, walking or whatever. And you see it from the hips up. And yes, the arms were extended. The neck was extended. The head was very large. And it was Tom, you know, on a rostrum so that he was as big or bigger than seven foot one in white. And that's how it was designed this one, yeah, we actually lengthened the legs a little bit more so that, you know, just to, just to make it a little more pleasing for a collectible. 
I personally really like Chet's design. There was a Japanese collectible company that that also did a version of that Chet in like black and silver tones that looked mm. cool. Oh, really? Ooh, yeah. that cool. But I like that coloration too. Alec, you know, you were saying about being shot from the, the waist up. Is that is that not sort of the mentality of pretty much all of the aliens? Yes, but I think that you know we we cheated the head just to get the body more elongated to look like it's formidable against a predator. We cheated that neck a little longer, cheated the arms a little longer, you know, like 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 the original alien. You know, he didn't really have significantly longer hands; just a big, tall, skinny guy with a big wingspan. I don't mean just; it was a genius design. I don't mean <laughs> pull quote from this interview. <laughs> we'll, we'll run with that headline. Yeah. So you guys were also heavily discouraging AVPR's Predalien from taking on too much of the Predator's behavior. I know there were some things filmed with the Predators in the ship being skinned and that it would take the spines and skulls. I think there was a point even in the script where the Predalien could cloak. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Did you guys push back on like, hey, this should not be acting too much like a Predator? Boy, I don't remember the uh, the cloaking. Hmm. I don't remember cloaking either. Wasn't that, that in one of the scripts, Aaron? I maybe. think you might be thinking. Of, I think you might be thinking of exactly thinking about it, oh, kind okay. of maybe. But I don't think it was written. I heard that from somewhere. But then again, we've only seen two of the scripts, so I don't. <laughs> it's one more than I've seen. Uh, <laughs> there was that scene where the predators are walking through the woods, and he sees somebody coming, and he just goes, "The pred alien goes like that," and he can't cloak because he doesn't have the, te- <laughs> the, the technology. I don't remember that. I, I Yeah, I certainly don't remember that at all. But you're right. There was that thing about he, he skins the body of, was it the sheriff? He, he skins the body, hangs it upside down, doesn't take the skull. No, that, 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 was, um, that was Wolf. I think, I think oh, Adam's thinking. Yeah, the, the, the um, predator bodies in the ship, the predator ship crew. Yeah. Uh, when Wolf goes in and investigates the ship, you see the two skinned green predator bodies hanging upside down. Right. Yeah, I don't know. We, you know, we pitched a, a whole kind of reproductive. We were trying to like pitch this idea that the Pred alien used reproduction as a weapon. And since we don't know anything about predator reproduction, we can, you know, there's leeway there. But we had this idea that it could impregnate you by stinging you with its tail and pumping an embryo into. And we knew that they wanted to do like multiple embryos because they needed to like get aliens out quick, right? Like to. Uh-huh. They did to speed that along so that they could have an infestation right quick. So we thought it'd be cool if it could like spear you, pump you full of embryos, which then are on a hyper fast gestation. And so you sort of blow, blow it up real quickly and then baby aliens start, you know, come out of you. And, you know, we submitted a thing, which is what we do a fair amount of time. You know, we're the creature guys. So we, we had a Fox exec send us a nasty email saying, guys, this is completely inappropriate. Please stop the body. We'll go with the pregnant women belly bursting and stuff. Well, I, yeah, I think <laughs> what he's doing is like, these guys are not in the writer's guild. We're a studio. We can't be accepting submissions, for, you know, some kind of thing like that. Instead of like, well, you know, if we had a meeting, we'd picture these ideas in the meeting, but. That's that was our uh, that was our attempted input on the gestation. There's a story that you guys had actually, I think, bid to direct or write the film. Is that just like an extension of that kind of story, or was that some urban myth? Yeah, not that one. Not that one. Tom had a cool uh, Alien Five script. Alien Salvation. Salvation, right? We're still looking how, forward to that one. How, how's that going? <laughs> because every, everybody wants to know how that how that's going, Tom. Well, it's, it's just creeping me out that you guys are telling me the name of my secret alien script. <laughs> you you told, uh, you Adam, told us about you it. You told Adam. Last time. Maybe I did. Maybe I did. <laughs> 
Well, it's going exactly how it was back then. Obviously, because I can't remember a damn thing. I probably had several meetings already that I've missed because I didn't remember them. No, it's tough. I was I had an, an opportunity to to write a novelization of the treatment, long treatment that I wanted to do, and I thought, well, maybe this would be a good way to see, you know, get it out to the fans and see what the fans think about it. But uh, ultimately, I said, oh, I just don't have there's so many things going on. I don't have the time to do it. And then all of this COVID thing hit. Right. And you're and you're there's nothing to do. There's nowhere to go. And and I just kept putting it off. I just didn't do it. And now I look back and and over the year that I've had, I probably had plenty of time to do it. And and I didn't. I just feel like partly it's Alec and I have both been wanting to write. And we have done, you know, Alex, Alec has directed a a project that directed a project. and, And we want to do that. But the problem is that the level is, you know, if you try to do a studio level thing, they're never going to look at us as writers. They're going to look at us. Oh, you're the guys that do the special effects. And yeah, all that's great. So it's it's like you just kind of get tired of, of hitting your head against the the, the, the brick wall. And I, I don't know that anything will, will happen of it, honestly. But at least, you know, it was nice to sit down and, and put it all out. My goal was to take all the, the Alien movies, except for the AVP movies, wrap it all up in one storyline that was kind of cohesive and, and led to a satisfying end. But nothing is happening with that. So when when you say sit down and the opportunity to sit down and sort of put it down in, in novelization form, was was that something like off, off your back or was, was they talk with like Titan or something for that? Because I bet they'd be right up for that. They've just they're doing a novel of Gibson's William Gibson's Alien, Alien 3 script. Oh no kidding. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. It's just so you know it's, it's I think it's so different to write a book than it is to write, you know, I've written lots of scripts and, and I've studied it, I understand it. Uh, um, not so with novels, but maybe it's not that different a thing. Maybe it's actually a little more of a flexible structure to write a novel, you know, to kind of focus on different things throughout rather than keep them all in in, in a format of discovery. Yeah, they did a they did an audio drama of that as well, of uh, Gibson's Alien 3. And they brought back Audible produced it. They brought back Lance Henriksen and, and Michael Bean. And it was, it was really interesting. I definitely recommend it. Wow. That's cool. So he finally got to play Hicks again. Well, Hicks. I guess after Colonial <laughs> Marines. We, we don't count Colonial Marines. <laughs> That's very cool. That's very cool. But just to finish on on the uh, Predalien question, so that story about you guys pushing back, like, hey, it shouldn't have these behaviors, that that was just a story that... Well, I mean, I think we... I don't remember specifically about the skinning, but we were... You know, you're always concerned about, is it supporting the story or like, is this an alien or is this a predator? And if you align it too much with, I mean, it's got to be, it's, you know, it's an alien, right? It's, it's, it's fighting against a predator. If it's, if it's acting too much like a predator, it seemed like it muddied the waters. But I don't remember specifically, you know, what the nuts and bolts of what we objected to or didn't object to. You know, we, all, our biggest recommendation was make this film as dark as you possibly can <laughs> see any of our work that, that we wanted. Yeah, I bet. That, sound, that sounds like another one of those um, those lies, I think. <laughs> so um, in in some ways, it was thanks to Stan Winston's recommendation that ADI became the caretakers. You know, you, you guys are the guys after after Aliens. So I was I was curious as to if you and Stan had ever sort of discussed the work on, on your films, you know. Not really. I know Tom and I have different memories of this. On Alien 3, Stan said he would do the film if he could direct it, but they already had Vincent Ward, and then, of course, they had So he knocked himself out of the running, and they came to us. Tom remembers, maybe that I missed something, that Stan referred us. Tom, did Stan refer us after he was told, you're not doing this film? For Alien 3? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's right. 
I do remember him saying something like, okay, well, if you're not going to use me, then go see Alec. Because that was around this. Oh, no, you know, I'm sorry. I'm con- there were two movies when we when we broke off. Stan recommended two movies to us to, that they come to us, Tremors and, and Death Becomes Her. So it was not an Alien 3 recommendation. Well, and, and Stan was in the running to do AVP. We love Stan. This is not a, this is business. What he said to us when we left, when we left, he said, go with my blessings. I will recommend you for work. Any work I cannot do, I'll recommend you for. Just be aware, I can do it all. And, uh, <laughs> all right, thank you very much, sir. But he would refer us. The, the Alien movies are, you know, they're big, prestigious movies. So AVP, his studio was really going for, to get that movie. And we were competing with our old mentor, which is a funny situation to be in. But he had taught us enough that it was not personal. And we got the show. It was also there was also mentioned that I don't know if Stan had said that he wasn't going to be on set that much or if they just knew it. If they just knew it. But yeah, but then there was there was that phone call where where, where Paul Anderson called up and said, Okay, if you're telling me that you two are both gonna be on set and Tom's gonna wear the alien suit, then you get the show. And that was an yeah, that was an easy answer for us because <laughs> But we both Very, wanted to yeah, we said we wouldn't do it any other way. Yeah, that's right. It was that it, it was the personal commitment. But no, Stan was Stan is our mentor in this business. And I, I always tell people he didn't really teach technique, you know, like, you know, use this rubber or this clay sculpting tool. He gave opportunities. He would see people who see the value that you brought and you would dump uh, responsibility on. And that's how you would grow. And that's how he, he he's the one that teamed Tom and I up together. We saw how well we worked together. And so he would say, you guys, this is your portion of this film. And he kind of created ABI in that respect. And he, he said, the things that I value about, I remember on Aliens, I think he said this, the things that I value about you are the things that are going to take you away from me. So he already knew it was sort of in our DNA to not be there forever. And I was only there for two and a half years. How long were you there, Tom? I was there for just under five years. Yeah, so a lot that blows a lot of people away when they hear that because there are people who were there who were with Stan. Joey Orozco, who's a phenomenal sculptor who, who was one of Stan's longtime sculptors. He was there for 16 years. Isn't that crazy, Tom, to hear that? Yeah, yeah. yeah especially when you look at, at how it started out when, when we started out in the early 80s. And none of us had any idea it was going to grow into what it became, you know, throughout the late 80s and early 90s. It was amazing. It was an amazing birth of art and, and, and performance. Is that kind of duration very uncommon then? It, you know, is, is it generally a quick turnaround kind of profession? Well, freelancing is, you know, because you're, you you're on for the run of the show, which might be three months or four months or two weeks or whatever. And, you know, most people would like to land at a place for a while so that you could have some stability of income. Et and bigger shops like Stan's or KMB, uh, ABI, we have been able to offer artists decades of employment, a core group of people. And then Tom and I are very proud that we provided work and incomes and careers for uh, a lot of people over the years because it's tough to be an artist, it's tough to be a freelance artist and have things like a house because it's a, it's a really it's a really tough profession. But Stan was always very big on stability and he would take jobs that weren't necessarily profitable just to just to hold the group together. And uh, Tom and I have done that as well. There's a lot of I guess all the creature studios they'll they'll hire by by job with with the freelancers and you'll get some people that'll just kind of rotate between the different shops like Steve Wang he did AVPR and Alien Resurrection for you guys but he also did work for for Winston and other studios as well right yeah. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. you know, over at Spectral. Uh, you know, yeah. So there are people who rotate. And that's a great thing. Is like a lot of us who own the shops started at the same time. You know, like the guys at K and B, Kevin Yeager. They were Stan's boys as well, weren't they? Yeah, and, and there was a, a group of people that came out of the Rick Baker camp, and a group of people that came out of the Stan camp. Tom and I were part of the Stan camp, and then that turned into other shows. And then you know it's opened up. So that's how the art gets elevated: is that people bring techniques and discoveries to the next place they work, and it's a it's a nice symbiosis, I think. So from the outside looking in, it seems like the biggest leap that the aliens took in terms of technology is in the Queen's technical portrayal and how that evolved. You know, she went from two guys strapped inside a shell to this giant, full-sized, sophisticated animatronic. How significant do you think the advancements of, of the practical effects have altered the way that you guys can approach and design and execute these effects in camera? I think. I, well, I think it, it provided more longevity for for our practical approach to effects, practical meaning it's there on set. And the reason is because we, we continue to, we continue to grow the way we were building monsters. If we had a show that could sustain it, you know, a big show like AVP and Paul Anderson's love of wanting to have a queen there, not rely on a digital queen. It, it I think it, it all goes back to the early nineties. Jurassic Park, certainly having that blend. Starship Troopers, where we provided the practical effects that blended with all of the Phil Tippett CG stuff. I, I think, I think that was probably the high point of realizing we were so we were getting so busy because there were so many movies now being greenlit that needed our kind of effects as well as the CGI effects. I think that prolonged it because towards the end of the 90s, as CGI was coming up, there were few and fewer projects until they found out that you can do a blend, you know, and make it work. But ironically, on the, at the, at the other end, you know, we built this queen and it had all these hydraulic servos and, and everything was, was operable by a team of, I think, eight puppeteers with wireless controls. And then when AVPR came along, we were keen to wanting to duplicate that approach for the newborn. I mean, for the uh, for the hybrid, because, you know, there's only so much you can do as a guy in a suit. Right. And Ian is a much taller guy as a predator. So we got the approval to build the hydraulic puppet of the hybrid. And and it could do a lot of stuff. It could turn it could its its legs were locked, but the upper body could turn 180 degrees and the head could whip back and forth. And those big, heavy mandibles with silicone skin could open and the tongue come out and all this great. Every every movement that we really wanted was in this puppet. And we took it up to set and we ultimately it came down to to uh, not being able to use it because we were on this set. It's towards the end of the shoot. Everybody's just going like crazy. They got to get everything done because they're running out of time. They had the rooftop set of the hospital built. It was like the four feet off the ground. We had our hydraulic uh, hybrid puppet sitting there. All we needed now was a forklift to pick it up, put it over here on the roof. And then we probably needed about 45 minutes to hook up all the hydraulic hoses. And production said, how long? 45 minutes? <laughs> they said, nope, take it out of here. And, and it never it never ended up going on film at all. It was just a lot of cuts of me on that on that platform, raised platform to raise my height up over my shoulder onto Ian and blocking my legs so that you couldn't see what was going on. And Tom, what you mentioned with combination of practical and other types of effects kind of leads into another question I had. I would say there was a time in the early 2000s where you had very strong harmony of practical and digital, seen quite prominently in films like AVP, as well as others like Jurassic Park 3, where you had digital and practical effects interacting with each other in the same shots. 
There was a shift more towards digital for a while, but it seems like that earlier harmony may be returning. In particular, we've seen really strong practical effects and even older techniques like Phil Tippett's Go Motion return in The Mandalorian, along with very new special effects tech techniques such as the impressive digital sets that they use. Do you see a renaissance of practical effects in today's quickly changing entertainment landscape? Mm, well... I want to see. I want to see it. You know, I want to see it. I, I'm, I'm not ready to retire. I love doing it. I don't know. You know, is there go motion in the Mandalorian? Yeah, they actually brought Phil Tippett on. I think one of the walkers that's in like oh, the junkyard. Yeah. They used go motion for that, and they use models for the the ship flyby shots a lot hmm. too. Do they really? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of talk about it, which has become. Maybe a decade ago, it feels like they were talking a lot about it. And we'd get like, we kind of got the feeling on a couple of productions that we were building things just so that they could say, we've got practical, right? Like it's whatever a, a studio feels will help sell the movie. That's at the studio level, but at the directing level, directors are always very interested in using practical stuff. We never have a problem with a director, you know. Rarely would the director be convinced to use something real. Because directors want things to look real. And they also want the stuff that they saw when they were kids and that they saw when they were behind the scenes. They want to work with the real practical stuff. But yeah, I think that that little baby Yoda has been a great breakout little character and a, and a great sales tool for practical stuff. And thank God for Werner Herzog, who called them cowards. Yeah, because they were going to replace it, the effect. Yeah. Yes, they called them cowards. That's some strong old school point of view there. But yeah, I mean, uh, lower budget movies we find are, are more better place or more, do I use the term safe space? They, they value the practical, I think, more than big budget movies because they don't have the option of using CGI. CGI is a more expensive technique than practical effects. So they can't use it. They don't just don't have the money for it. And then they embrace it and they're excited about embracing it. We're having a lot of good time with smaller films lately. So hopefully, hopefully there's a, a renaissance. Hopefully people just start realizing that it's a tool and you have to have a bunch of tools. Oh, yeah, there's another aspect that digital artists and companies don't necessarily want to do all of it. They used to back in, in the 90s. We used to have this real like pervasive kind of aggressive claiming of every single shot in the film to bring it in because they needed to justify their overhead or whatever. But nowadays, it seems like digital companies are more interested in breaking things up and having the practical work take some of the load off of them because they're really under the gun a lot. Most of their work happens in post-production as they're coming, like racing fast towards a, a release date. And they, they want to do a good job. They don't want to have too many shots to overwhelm them and look crappy and then have more people say digital looks crappy, you know, which is not really a fair criticism because it, it doesn't always if you're doing it right and funding it properly. There have been times where, where we've had the opportunity to provide our work and then digital comes in. And a few times where we would be so severely underfunded, we turn in a budget. This is what we want to build. This is how much it's going to cost. And we've been told, oh, you know what? We want to put more of this money into the digital. So go ahead and build smaller. Don't don't make it do this much. Don't have this many things. And it, it, it becomes a no-win situation because then the minute you walk on set, there's that that's a pervasive feeling that because they sort of tied your hands to not build everything that you could build, they're going to replace it anyway. So it, it doesn't serve anybody's purpose except to convince in some producers' minds who are already looking in this direction thinking, I don't think you're going to make anything practical that's going to make me believe it. Well, particularly when you when you've got the budgets the way it was going for a while. 
While it was something that Ridley Scott first thought about while making Alien, it wouldn't really come to be a reality until Alien 3 came around. And that's the notion that the alien is influenced by its host. Now, you guys have been the ones to play with this feature the most, with the dog alien and the pred alien. But if you... Personal choice. If you guys were given freedom, is there any particular hybrid, any crazy combination that you guys would most like to have a crack at designing? It's back to those toys from the 80s. Yeah. The, you know, like the, the bull alien. They had a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. yeah. We, we really liked that idea way back when. Yeah. What is it? It's like giraffe alien. This is what you <laughs> like thinking. Oh, just all that vertebrae on that neck, right? Like, yeah, so I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't hold the same, I guess because it's been done, we've had a chance to do it a bit. It doesn't hold the same interest level to me as it once did. I don't know. What do you think, Tom? Oh, I think a car would be the answer. <laughs> okay. a, car that could turn, a car that could turn into a robotic monster of sorts. Never been done. <laughs> Well, you know, in one of the Alien 3 scripts, I think it was Eric Red's, they actually had a space station transform into an alien. I never heard that one before. Yeah, the very end of it, it was uh, mad. You know, that's funny because Fincher had a great idea, the logo, the 20th Century Fox logo at the beginning of the film on Alien 3. He wanted it to turn into an eagerized version of the logo. That would have been way cool. I think we bid on it. We bid on creating a sculpture century fox logo that was all eager and they would do i don't know what they would i don't know how they were going to do it back then rudimentary cgi or some wipes optical wipes. but they're like nah we're not spending the money but i guess you could do that you could say that that biomechanical thing is itself a virus or a disease or something is that what the borg are though from star trek i mean they infect people and it turns them into nanobots transform them and stuff but yeah, anyway you have both been involved in creating so many effects for the Alien and Predator films. Is there any specific effect or sequence that you are most proud of accomplishing? Body of work itself is the accomplishment. I don't know, Tom, you know, remember uh, we were told that on uh, we got the job on Thing 2011 because of the fleshy quality of what we did in Alien Resurrection. Yeah, that's right. That was fun on Resurrection to get a chance to like detail out the eggs. And, you know, do a little bit more with face huggers leaping and traveling. And yeah, one of my favorites were, were all those uh, those discarded embryos in yeah. Resurrection. It was just such freakish looking things. But but the idea was in each of them to imbue some kind of, of humanity in them. You know, it's like even even if it was just a human eye that we, we didn't want them to look like monsters as much as just these really you would have you would have this passion for the character of these things. And, and even though they, even though it was very clear that they they weren't going to turn out well at all. I thought that was cool. I loved all of this. Yeah, that, I, even, I even wanted out. This is something I, I suggested to uh, Jean-Pierre and didn't go. But but I was Ripley has that uh, has that eight tattooed on her arm. Right. And then we see one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I was hoping that uh, this was early on. I, I thought it'd be cool if she kept looking at it as an infinity sign, you know, the eight on its side. Infinity, I'm going to last forever. And then when she's in that scene and, and she turns it like this and realizes she's number eight. I just I love everything I think about. <laughs> that number seven club was a was a fun one to do and yeah. it was an entirely mechanical body and breathing and, and she was uh Sigourney was so game for that it wouldn't have worked if she hadn't been willing to get on a slant board spend a few hours going into makeup and have a bunch of puppeteers under her like Tom was on Alien Aliens. Yeah, we go back to resurrection. That's funny. There's a lot of good yeah. work in that movie. That scene is probably one of the series' best. Yeah, I agree. 
And we didn't want to bring up Alien 5. We know you can't really talk about it in depth. We did notice in the behind the scenes footage on The Predator that there was a full size alien in the background. Had you also discussed the actual effects work with Blomkamp? Would the film have had Tom in a suit again? We did talk about the effects work. We were designing. We just, you can go on his uh, Instagram, I believe, and see a, a picture of the Alien 5 maquette that we was that a small one, though, or was that the giant thing that you well, see in that giant, scene? The giant one was just brought to us by, I think, Prop Store brought it over. Oh, you know what? Actually, we were using it as reference. It was a casting, fiberglass casting of the original. Oh, okay. Right, okay. As, as sculptural reference just to get, you know, because Neil's deal was he he, want, he really wanted to get back to the feeling of the 79 alien. And we were asking, like, why aren't you, you're a master of photo real CGI. Why aren't you doing the CGI? He said, because having something real forces you into shooting it in a way that will look like what Ridley Scott did in 1979. That's what he wanted. So there's a guy that is a master of CGI who understands that it is a tool to be used to get certain results, you know, that are right for certain stories. But that's why that was there. So with with Dan Trachtenberg's new Predator film scheduled to start shooting in May and Noah Hawley's Alien TV series announced, can we expect to see ADI involved in either of those? What, what does it say when you Google to say that ADI is involved? In- no, it doesn't. say anything. Oh. Mm. Then we have to agree with that. well that's actually everything from adam and i we do have just a a couple a handful of questions from community members so immorton jonesy in particular would like to know if you'd have any interest in taking a crack on a space a not a crack on that's a different um connotation over here i don't know about you guys no Um, it sounds bad Okay. Um, Morton Jonesy would like to know if you have any interest in perhaps having a stab at creating a space jockey animatronic. Yes. How much money does he have? <laughs> uh, yeah, it'd be great. Any anything anything iconic in this whole world of aliens and predators is a really. It's just such a it's just such a cool thing to be able to uh, look at something that that inspired you, you know, forty years ago, and actually, you know, be able to put your your thumbprint on it, particularly with with movement and and motion and, and character performance. And Syl would like to know if you could go back and replace any effect in one of your movies that you worked on with um, modern technology, but it still has to be practical. Which effect and why? Hmm. That's interesting. Is it just the alien predator movies? Oh, go crazy, go crazy. Oh my god. I look, I look at shots that are from Terminator, from the original Terminator that come out where I was puppeteering Arnold's head when he was doing the eye operation. And, oh, it was a, it was a rigid, in one rigid, it was a flexible puppet. And, and I was like, like down on my knees and Arnold was reaching around doing it and all this shit, stuff's going on. And, you know, you, you, you figure, well, your wrist, you can, you can look left and you can look right, but you have to find the right center, which we hadn't done. So it's like, I could only lean in one direction and, Anyway, blah, blah, blah. It did not look good to me. It's always kind of like stiff and like you could tell the guy inside was having trouble moving that mass of rubber. Yeah, that's that that does stand. Every time I see it, I go, ooh, but it, everybody loved it. Everybody loved the movie. Yeah. Tom, you know, we're on a, a list that I see occasionally of the 10 worst practical effects. And it's the pic- and it's the picture of him with that eye operation. Yeah. And, but your shot is not number one. That's my shot, which is on this particular list, which is from Jaws 3D, where the, oh, yeah, sliding towards camera and breaking and the glass. It breaks through the glass. And it's just the, so I, I was in charge of that miniature shark 
It was a very early job. And uh, well, I had a good crew. Dave, Dave uh, Nelson, who's an Englishman, who is a fantastic animatronics designer, who worked on uh, the Talking Bishop. But the thing swam. It looked great. But the story was that uh, it was a lot. It was they had run out of money and uh, they didn't have enough money for puppeteers to actually make the shark swim. So it's just kind of doing this. <laughs> And then it stops at some point. So, but I wouldn't change a thing because I'm number one. <laughs> we have a, another question from Syl. Recently, we were able to get an early script breakdown from AVP, which outlined a lot of effect sequences that never made it into the final film, such as an entirely different opening, but some of which you had done work for, such as the naked sleeping predators. When in the process do you start your design and preparation? Do you work based on a script or a brief, or do you wait until the script breakdown start? How do you juggle designing elements for an in-progress script while not wasting too much time driving and fabricating things that may not make it to screen? Wow, so is, uh, so those are good questions. We are presented with a script and we start, we do our own breakdowns of a list and we make a proposal. Here's what we build and we go back and forth and VFX folks will come in and go, well, we can do this. And then you arrive at that build list through back and forth communication. You bid on that build list and very often you will start getting paid to design and build. And then the script is continually changing and you may have to take items out of your list that no longer apply or add new items into the list. You have to stay flexible that way. And you do try not to burn money. You know, there's usually like a list of things that you know are going to be in the film. You know there's going to be an alien or a predator, so you probably safe working on those things, but maybe not a miniature naked predator that has to rise up out of oily substance. But you just you hit the ground. Right? I think we only had three, four months of prep on ABP. So we had to start building everything and production takes the risk that a rewrite might end up, you know, we might end up spending money on something that doesn't make the rewrite. So it's, yes, it's a nebulous wool gathering process. It's, and it's probably not as, 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 as chaotic as it sounds. Like, like, I know there was a lot of talk in the, in the, the trade magazines, papers about, uh, oh, Alien 3, the beleaguered Alien 3, they're throwing out another script and they're starting another script and they're trying to start shooting. And, and there's an aspect of that, a version of that that is true. But the real truth is that everything we started building was already locked into wherever the next script was going to be going. So it, it's, it's, it's never like you get to the point of developing like a, a full, uh, animatronic queen and them not ever using it. You can do that with a hybrid, apparently. So, but that wasn't so much a story or script thing. That was just a cost thing. No. So I think the, the, the real answer is yes, there's some of that, but it's probably not as, uh, as chaotic and a, a crazy waste of money as you, as you might expect. Just listening, uh, reading the, the reports. I think you guys just need to invest in a forklift. I think was the, the story from the hybrid. Oh, you need a big head because it was so heavy. And- anyway, sorry. <laughs> And Mara Room asks if there is anything that you created that's gone unnoticed by fans and audiences, any detail or plot point that was put into their work that into your work that people either missed, gloss over, glossed over or misunderstood. I'd say all of our effects on the thing 2011. Yeah. Oh, I like. <laughs> no, no. Listen, that movie was great. I mean, we loved working on the movie and the video, subsequent video that we put out has made a, a big splash. So there was no downside to that event. But yes, details. I don't know. Goro's dilating eye pupils, maybe. We were the first guys, as far as I know, the first team to make a one to one human eye with a dilating eye pupil. 
Uh, I know it was done on Jurassic Park with a cantaloupe. Yeah, but but there was something too. There was something too that, that was happening with Rick Baker and his show, uh, some big show he was doing because somebody came over from Rick Baker's shop and said, "Well, this is how Rick did it." And I remember we called Rick and said, "Hey, do you mind? Can we let this guy do we go go wild and do it?" He said, "Well, he said, you know, I kind of put a lot of money into it and develop it. I'd I'd like to use it first sometime." He said, "Okay," and we came up with a completely different way of doing it. So his eye, his eye was not his was not the one that Rick was doing was not human size. We were working in a much smaller. Yeah. Okay. I think I could be wrong. It had something to do with with feather fibers or something. I remember David Kindle saying. Yeah, it was like a it was like a, a brush, like a brush. You know, if you took a, a watercolor brush and pushed it against the sphere, it would kind of mm. it kind of spread out. It, was, it sounded cool. Yeah, but I don't know that anybody really notices that or appreciates that about Goro. There's a lot about Goro that people do appreciate, but that did have a kind of a sophisticated eye mech inside. We used it also on Wolf on the on the movie Wolf. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah, there's always stuff we do that doesn't get uh, noticed. Well, I'm sure in the art and effects world and in the world of fandom. It does. As long as people sense it, they don't have to actually see it. That is actually everything from us. So uh, before we just sign off, is there anything you guys would like to talk about? Any anecdote or thought that we just haven't given you the opportunity to discuss so far? Or, or we just nailed it? <laughs> yeah. Could not have gone better, fellas. <laughs> I think the only thing that could have improved this is if our memories were better. Fair enough. I mean, I've enjoyed myself, but you know, yeah. I, I'm, st- I'm still I'm still now doubting everything I ever hear from Tom. But... <laughs> I don't know. I don't know who these two. I don't know who this Alec and Tom duo is that you keep talking about. But they sound like they've had a pretty interesting life. <laughs> well, it certainly seems it from the outside looking in. That's for sure. Mm. Well, you wouldn't want to be in here. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, seriously, gentlemen, thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, thank you, guys, and thank you, yeah. and thank you, uh, your uh, audience as well. Thank, thanks for uh, continuing to promote practical effects because we need guys like you, guys and gals in your audience, to keep the art alive. Well, I know fans would not be happy if we start seeing Alien and Predator movies and shows that don't have them. Agreed. Agreed. Right, well, before we end, we would just like to, again, thank Tom and Alec for taking the time to come and chat to us. We did keep them a little longer than I think they'd originally <laughs> intended to stay, but they, they seemed to be enjoying themselves as much as we were, so it was very much appreciated. Yeah, definitely. It's always good to have them on, and we may be doing another interview with Tom in the future, focusing on the suit performance aspect of things, so keep an eye out for that one. Careful announcing future projects on the YouTube channel. You know what happened last time? Oh, okay. Well, never mind then. But I'll leave that one in anyway, just for fun. And if you know, you know. Thank you, everybody who has been watching or listening. Depending on your platform of choice is very much appreciated. And if you do want to reach out to us, let us know what you think of the episodes. Let us know what you think of the podcast or stuff in general. You know, you can email us at podcast at AVP Galaxy or, you know, just commenting on, on wherever you, you're getting this stuff from, you know, social media, on the boards, on YouTube, whatever. We love to hear back from people about what they like about the show, what they don't like about the show, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's always appreciated, the feedback. Adam, where can people find us? 
If you'd like to find our website, it's avpgalaxy.net. And we're also on all the major socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course, YouTube, if you're watching here. If you search AVP Galaxy or Alien vs. Predator Galaxy, you're sure to find us. Also, be sure to check out Studio ADI on their socials as well. I believe they are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I'm not sure how active they are on Facebook and Twitter, but I do think Instagram might be a bit more. And I know Tom and Alec also have personal Instagrams where they're more active. And their YouTube channels have quite a channels. YouTube channel has quite a lot of content, which is is really good. It's not just Alien and Predator, of course, because they do a lot more than those things. But there is some great stuff on there. So uh, head on over and check them out. Also, we're recording this a bit before, but again, happy Alien Day from us. And uh, we hope we're enjoying some new announcements with you all when that day rolls around. I'm I'm not expecting anything. We'll see. We'll see. I can always hold out hope. Indeed. But once again, this has been Corporal Hicks and Ridge Top signing off. <laughs>